Voyage. It was the most just gut-wrenching sight I've ever seen in my life. When I turned the light on and shined it across the ocean, all, all you see is, you know, huge 25 plus foot mountains of water that are moving and collapsing and there's white water and spray everywhere. And, and you know, some of these waves look bigger than the boat. And, and I just remember like, you know, there's a scene from the movie Aliens where, um, you know, they think they hear something and they turn on a light and they see all of the aliens, you know, are coming up the shaft and they realize like, oh my God, we're screwed. That is exactly how I felt. Like, oh my God, this is the end. We're, this is not survivable. In February of 1999, 26-year-old U.S. Naval Submarine Officer Cameron Thurman set out from Pearl Harbor, Hawaii, to Yokosuka, Japan, aboard a 32-foot sailboat that also doubled as his home, accompanied by a crew of two complete strangers, Japanese free spirit and surfer Hiroki, and Polish family man Charlie, a former naval officer, and the only one of the trio with any significant sailing experience. It was a journey intended to take less than 30 days. It would stretch on for a grueling 44 days, testing and pushing them and the boat to their limits. Their survival hinged entirely on their ability to communicate with, rely upon, and trust in each other despite their differences. Today, after a lengthy military career in both the Navy and the Air Force, Cameron is an emergency medical physician who works weekend night shifts in a busy hospital trauma center and also teaches medical students and emergency medicine residents. As physicians, uh, we kind of see ourselves as, you know, the main character in whatever drama is, is unfolding in the emergency department that day. Um, but the reality is, that's just another day for us. Just another day at work. It might be a good day at work, it might be a bad day at work, but it's it's just another day at work. For some of our patients, this is the worst day of their life. For some of their families, this is the worst day of their lives. And, and I tell the medical students and I tell the residents, you have to realize that and you have to treat them as such. You have to take the focus off of you and put the focus on your on your patients. And, and you know, it's it's odd, but that's not something they teach you in medical school. That's not something they you know they typically teach in residency. You know, that's something that I learned twenty something years ago on a thirty two foot boat in the middle of the Pacific. Let's go back, back before his life altering experience in the Pacific, before his decision to become an engineer for the U.S. Navy. Cameron was your classic small-town boy with big-time dreams. He grew up in Lancaster, South Carolina. In my hometown, I mean, it's it's a very cotton mill town, you know. Um, I think when I was growing up, there were probably 12 stoplights in the town. Um, so I just had this, you know, idea that I wanted to be something great. You know what I mean? Like, oh, I, I'm going to go do something phenomenal. And I got to get away from this 
this small town. It's not not big enough for me, you know. So in, in high school, I was a very wayward soul. My uh, cousins, so like the siblings of my, you know, I, I grew up with several cousins that I was very close to. We were all kind of the same age and, and all grew up together. And everyone except Terry, who had special needs, their lives all kind of spun out of control. They all died very young, and I could have very well gone down that path. So I was lucky in that kind of watching drugs and alcohol destroy the people around me was a real eye-opener. Like, that's a dangerous path. And and I realized that, that I have the genes and the personality that if I were to go that route, it would end up horribly for me. So I was able to start avoiding that. The hardest thing that I had to do was make the first decision that I'm not going to take the path most traveled. I'm going to go do something different. I'm going to buy a boat and I'm going to live on it. And that decision, that first decision to do something a little bit different kind of led the way to all the other decisions. I wasn't sure early on like what I wanted. I didn't know where I wanted to go. I didn't know what I wanted to do. And honestly, I still probably don't know. I mean, I'm, I'm getting older and I, I still make, I'm still changing direction in life. But in all honesty, I think that, that that's the skill that I learned that, that has helped me the most in life. So the skill of being able to leave the path that I'm on to go forge a new path. The, the one that, that fits me at the time. Cameron had a longing for freedom that continued to grow throughout his adolescence, eventually becoming a full-on case of wanderlust. As for his desire to own a boat. And uh, I guess, you know, maybe I had been, uh, you know, I'm going back and watching like some of the old Miami Vice uh, TV show where Don Johnson lived on the boat. And maybe that's where I got the idea or, you know, Trapper John MD used to live in the RV out behind the hospital. And so I kind of had these, you know, kind of fantasy ideas from childhood uh, in my head. I got some uh, sailing magazines and I picked up Cruising World, which is all about like people living on boats and sailing around the world. And, and I thought, man, this, this is awesome. This is like action, adventure, glamour. This is me, this, this is me. What may have started as an adolescent fantasy continued to persist in Cameron's mind for years, much like his desire for a career in entertainment. But after high school, on the very practical advice of his father, he forgoes his plan of becoming a drama student and studies chemical engineering. Upon graduating, he manages to flourish in the Navy's difficult, highly competitive nuclear prototype program and lands an assignment in Hawaii aboard the submarine USS Olympia. I had kind of given up on the idea of buying a boat. It started to seem impractical. You know, my knowledge of boats was, was completely non-existent. And so I was like, well, you know, maybe this isn't the right time. You know, maybe I'll, I'll put this on a back burner and, and I'll just go be a young Navy officer and, you know, concentrate on my job like, like I'm supposed to do. Still, as a recent college graduate, embarking on a career where he'd be potentially traveling all over the country, if not the world. It didn't make sense. I felt like I was throwing all this money away on rent and I didn't want to buy a house, sell a house, buy a house, sell a house. And I thought, well, I could either buy an RV and drive the RV around from, from duty station to duty station, or I could buy a boat and live on the boat. But while it made sense to Cameron. Talking to my friends and family like, hey, man, I think I'm, I'm going to buy a boat and live on it. And they were like, nope. 
nope, dumbest idea in the world, don't do that. A dream deferred, or is it? The flight from the East Coast to Hawaii is over 12 hours. So I'm like, well, I'm gonna need something to read on the plane. So I'm just, I'm walking through the bookstore looking for stuff to read, and I pick up this book called Seagulls in My Soup by Tristan Jones. And it, it looked interesting. It had a really weird title. Uh, it was about sailing, which I was still interested in, even though I had kind of given up on the idea. And uh, so I buy the book. I'm on the flight, and I start reading the book. And it is the most fascinating thing I've ever read in my life. So this guy is living on a small boat. He's sailing around the world. He's having all these adventures. And I'm just like, this is what I want to do. This is awesome. I literally read the entire book on the flight from cover to cover. And when the plane lands in Hawaii, I am like, I am buying a boat and I am living on it. Like, like I am 100% set. Now fully committed to living out his dream of buying and living on a boat, Cameron begins contacting Hawaiian yacht brokers and is immediately struck a hard blow by the reality of his financial situation. Driving, uh, drive out to the, to the first yacht broker. And literally within two minutes of walking in the door, my expectations are completely shattered. Like, uh, you know, I have this idea, I'm gonna live on a yacht. You know what I mean? A yacht, a big, beautiful, fancy sailboat. And uh, they took a look at my finances, like, no, I can live on a sailboat. And uh, really, to be more honest, I can live on a small sailboat that's very old. Like, that's what I can afford. Eventually, Cameron finds and purchases a 32-foot sailboat. So the boat was built in Yokosuka, Japan in 1970. Like 1970. The, the boat was then sailed by somebody from Yokosuka, Japan to Long Beach, California. That guy sold the boat to somebody else who sailed it to Hawaii. That guy sold it to the guy that couldn't drive, who then sold it to me. The boat was named Lily No. Uh, Lily No is Hawaiian for white squall. It is bad luck to change a boat's name. And so I left the, left the name. White Squall, which for anyone who has seen the tragic, based on a true story, 1997 Ridley Scott movie starring Jeff Bridges, yes, it would prove to be an ominously apt name. But for now, Cameron needs to make his new boat both seaworthy and habitable. Between buying the boat and the necessary inspection and repairs, he's now completely broke. Luckily, his naval career finally kicks in, which means he's getting three square meals a day while living aboard the submarine but he quickly makes a dispiriting discovery. Honestly, I, so I, at this point, I have joined the Navy, but I've never been on a real ship at sea. I have bought a sailboat to live on, but I have never actually sailed. But I've got all these you know, grandiose ideas about how wonderful all this is gonna be. And so the submarine gets underway and uh, we have to be on the surface uh, for the whole day. And a US nuclear submarine is shaped Basically like a big round cigar with a little tube on top. And it is not designed to be on the surface. And it rocks and rolls like you would not believe. I mean, just this constant, you know, 20 degrees in each direction kind of rocking and rolling. And the waves out of, you know, Hawaii are big. So it's it's not like, you know, you're on, you know, calm water. It's just, you know, big water. And I 
got so seasick. I mean, it was unbelievable. And it's the Navy, man. There is no mercy. Like, we're sorry you're seasick, but you got a job to do, and you're still going to do your job. So so on the submarine, like, you're never allowed to not have somebody on the periscope. So literally, I would get to the point where I am going to throw up. Like, I, I'm going to throw up right now. And you yell, scope, and somebody comes up, and they take the scope from you, and they look out of it. And I had a trash bag tied to my belt. And you pull the trash bag off, vomit into the bag, tie it back up so it doesn't stink up the whole room, put it back on your belt, and then you go right back on the periscope again. And it, it was just constant. Cameron's fears regarding his chosen career path are somewhat assuaged as he gradually gains his sea legs. So after, after you know, a couple of days, I, I'm starting to kind of get used to it. And I'm still like, ah, I'm like not feeling great, but I can handle it. But now I'm worried, like, oh my God, like, because I know that in the marina, the boat rocks. And I've never really been on the boat in the marina. So I'm not sure if that rocking in the marina is gonna make me sick or not. And, and I'm, uh, it was probably one of the most disheartening uh, moments of my life. I really, really thought that I had screwed everything up, kind of beyond repair. This is gonna be my life. Like, I get horribly seasick and I joined the Navy and I bought a boat to live on. Oh my God, everybody was right. This was the dumbest thing in the world. Uh, I'm screwed, I'm screwed. Soon, Cameron is thrown a major curveball when he receives a transfer halfway around the world to Japan. He initially looks into having the boat shipped overseas, but is deterred by the astronomical cost. Ultimately, he decides that since it is a boat, after all, he might as well sail it. The only problem, despite having bought a copy of Sailing for Dummies and several trial and error excursions, it's clear that Cameron has gotten much better at living on a boat than sailing one. So once I decided I was gonna sail the boat, I had to get my orders changed. So now my orders have to say that I'm going uh, POV, personally owned vehicle, boat. So I, I call the people and they're like, I don't, I don't, I don't know about this. And I said, Oh no, you know, other people have done it. It's gonna be fine. It's not a problem, you know. And and uh, they're like, Well, listen, you gotta, you gotta prove that you're like capable of doing this. And I'm like, I don't. Like, what do you want me to do? They're like, Well, get your submarine captain to write a letter that says you are a competent sailor and you can do this. And then we'll we'll do it. I'm like, Okay, no problem. But, but in reality, it's a problem because I've had a lot of misadventures and I'm somewhat famous at this point for some of my misadventures. I almost hit uh, a Navy warship on my first time out with the boat. Everybody in Pearl Harbor knew that I almost hit a warship. I drove the boat in backwards. I hit the dock. I had had a couple of other uh, outings that had not gone well that had become somewhat somewhat folklore. Uh, and so I'm like, oh my God, like my captain is not going not gonna to sign this. Despite his legendary status as a decidedly novice sailor, he manages to convince his captain to sign the paperwork that will allow him to sail to Japan aboard his boat. And so uh, I put out some feelers you know, to friends. I was like, hey guys, I, I'm going to sail my boat from Hawaii to Japan. Does anybody want to come? And I got so many, oh yeah, I'm in. Oh, absolutely, man. Yeah, this is going to be great. We're going to do this. It's going to be awesome. 
I had so many people tell me that they were going to sail with me. I was starting to get worried, like, oh my God, I'm going to have to tell people they can't go. Like, who am I going to, like, I'm going to have to tell some of my friends, like, I'm sorry, we just can't fit you. Cameron begins spending all his off-duty time scrambling to transform the Lilino from a floating condominium into a craft seaworthy enough to survive the 4,000-mile journey. As we get closer and closer, my friends all start backing out. You know, like, oh, is it this month? I'm sorry, man. I'm not going to be able to get off work. I'm sorry. And I knew I was in trouble when my unemployed friends started coming up with excuses. You know, like, oh, you know, my brother's cousin's mother's moving that week. And I got, you know. And so then I said, like, uh oh, like, I'm going to be, I'm going to be doing this by myself. Like, this is, this is getting scary. So I get, I actually went around and got a bunch of three by five index cards and I make like an Ernest Shackleton type, you know, advertisement. You know what I mean? Like one way trip to Japan, adventure guaranteed. And I, I go to every marina in Hawaii and put up one of these, one of these cards. I go to every place where I can imagine a sailor would go and nobody responds. With just a few weeks until he's to depart Hawaii, Cameron grows increasingly concerned about his lack of a crew until he answers a page. Only one person responded, and that was Hiroki. And, you know, I, I sit him down and I'm like, I'm, I'm doing this interview like I'm, you know, interviewing him for a job. When in reality, he's the only applicant. He doesn't know he's the only applicant, but I know that. And uh, I'm like, so, man, like, how much, uh, how much sailing experience do you have? And he's, not. I've never sailed before. Oh, but you've been on boats, right? Like, you've, you've got some boating experience? He's, no, I've never been on a boat before. And I'm like, like, uh, like, what's your back? Like, what do you do? He's like, well, you know, I like surfing. Hiroki is not, in fact, his real name. For this podcast, we will not be using the actual names of Cameron's crewmates, as we were unable to locate them. More on that later. So he was a surfer at the time, and, and I was a surfer as well. So we had that in common. He thought it would be really cool. He thought if you had a boat, you could kind of go to all these surfing spots. So he was going to use this as a way to learn about boats to kind of expand his, his surfing horizon. Hiroki was in his early 20s and had been working at a local resort. Much like Cameron, he had left his home in Japan to avoid the ordinary, the expected. In his case, likely a work-a-day life pumping gas, and came to Hawaii in search of adventure. Now, there were lots of things about Hiroki that made me nervous. Uh, I mean, the guy was not the most responsible guy in the world. And it was, and he was honest about it. It's not like he's like trying to, you know, pull it over on you. I mean, the guy was like, you know, he was a completely honest, like heart on his sleeve, like this is who I am. By way of example, Hiroki explains to Cameron that he no longer owns a car. The one he'd been driving, the check engine light had come on and he'd simply ignored it, continuing to drive the vehicle until it finally just died. The reality is, I, I liked his gumption. I mean, you know, it's it's pretty, uh, you gotta have some cojones to sign up for a open ocean crossing if you've never done anything like that before. And um, so we did, and then I thought like, well, we're going to Japan. Having a Japanese guy that speaks Japanese, that's probably gonna be helpful. So, <laughs> so, He's hired. Part of Cameron's decision to bring Hiroki on board also lay in the reality of how much work there was left to be done before setting sail for Japan. The boat looks like the junkyard from Sanford and Son. 
when you come down to it. I mean, basically, all of the insides of the boat and the mast are on the pier, and the boat is like this this empty hull. So I'm like, all right. I said, hey, man, um, why don't you help help me fix the boat, and, and you'll learn about it that way. He's like, cool, I can do that. So then it gets to the point where he's like, you know, we're working until, you know, midnight, 1 o'clock in the morning. And uh, he's like, I'm going to move out of my apartment and just live here. And I'm like, that's that's fine. You know, we got I got so much work to do. He did absolutely everything I asked him to do. Uh, he was not a good craftsman, but I was not a good craftsman either. So, I mean, we were kind of figuring it out as we went along together. And honestly, I couldn't complain about a, a single thing that he did because I couldn't have done it any better. Despite their combined lack of nautical knowledge and the language barrier, Hiroki spoke very little English and Cameron not a lick of Japanese, the two throw themselves into the repairs. Until, while working on the boat in the marina on a Saturday morning, just two weeks left before departure, they hit a snag. I kind of noticed this this guy coming down the dock and he's got a he's got a suit on and that's not normal for Hawaii. And uh, and he's Japanese. And I don't reckon, I've never seen this guy before in my life. And, you know, he's looking around and he's trying to, you know, and he, he spots Hiroki and he's, he, you know, starts making a beeline toward us. And I'm like, uh-oh, like this, this can't be good. And so Hiroki and the Japanese guy start talking and like they're really rapid fire, you know, going at it in, in, in Japanese. And with every sentence, Hiroki turns whiter and stands up straighter and his face gets a little blanker. And I'm like, oh boy, like we're in trouble. But finally Hiroki looks over at me and he says, Kamarasa, ah, my mother is here. And I'm like, what? He's like, my, my mother's here. And I'm like, oh, okay. He's like, if she sees this boat, she won't let me go. And I'm like, like, well, where is she? And and the 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 guy in the suit is like points up to the marina. Hiroki had thought enough to write his mom in Japan and tell her that he'd met an American sailor and was going to accompany him on his boat to Japan. The only problem, Hiroki had already moved out of his apartment and onto Cameron's boat, leaving no way for his now very concerned mother to get a hold of him. So she gets on a plane and she flies to Hawaii to find her son. And so she goes to the Japanese consulate in Hawaii and tells them the story. And so the Japanese, the Japanese consulate guy basically picks up the phone and he calls every U.S. naval vessel in Pearl Harbor and says, do you have a Cameron who is sailing to Japan on his own boat? And so, I mean, he's calling you know, destroyers, and he's calling, you know, all these places. And, and eventually he calls my submarine, and you know, everybody on the boat knows that, you know, I've got this cockamamie idea. Uh, they're all calling me Gilligan and, you know, kind of laughing at it and everything. And, and so, uh, so they're like, yeah, the guy's like, yeah, 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 that's our guy. That's, that's, that's uh, Lieutenant Thurman. It is through Cameron's fellow officers that the man from the Japanese consulate and Hiroki's mom find their way to Rainbow Bay Marina. We can't let her come down to the pier. And he's like, okay. He's like, well, look, you know, Japanese people follow rules. If you tell her that she's not allowed on the dock, she won't come on the dock, no questions asked. Like, okay, great. And so across 
the pier from my boat is another boat that is beautiful. I mean, it's the boat, you know, when I, when I first thought I was going to buy a boat and I was going to live on it, it's the yacht that I dreamed I would have. You know, it's big, it's beautiful, it's all in one piece. Let's tell her that that's the boat that we're going on. And he's like, okay. And now the consulate guy is like, whoa, 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 like, wait a minute, like, you want me to lie to this? <laughs> this? I'm like, no, 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 Look, we don't want you to lie. Just don't say anything. You just have to keep your mouth shut. So we go back up. Uh, up to the restaurant, and uh, and I buy you know buy his lunch, and uh, and you know we're telling Hiroki's mom like oh that big beautiful boat right there that's the boat we're going on and you know we're just working on it a little bit. And the Japanese consulate doesn't say a word. He's you know he he, he kind of goes along with the plan. He's not happy, but he he goes along with the plan. And uh, she never asks. We tell her she can't come down. She's she's completely fine with that. Having met me and having seen. You know, this beautiful, safe boat that her son's going to go on. She gives him her okay, and, uh, you know, she flies back to Japan. Crisis averted. But it turns out Hiroki's wasn't the only mother concerned about the imminent departure of the Lilano and her inexperienced crew. And so my mom is totally freaking out. She's like, look, man, you got to take somebody that knows what they're doing. Like, like I get it, I, you know... You're in the Navy, but a submarine and a sailboat are completely, there's no nuclear reactor on your boat. Uh, if it dives, it's never coming back up. You know, like this is serious. And uh, so she's like, look, you, you need to get a professional. And so I was like, okay, maybe, maybe I should get a professional. Cameron grows increasingly desperate as days tick by and his date of departure looms ever closer. Enter Charlie. I had called every single ad uh, in every single sailing magazine I could get my hands on. And one guy, one guy said, yep, I can do it. And I can do it, you know, this month. And, and that was Charlie. So so the reality was, you know, I, I'm pretending like it's a phone interview. It's not a phone interview. He's the only guy he's hired. As with Hiroki, though he does not speak much English, Charlie is eager and willing to sign on for the adventure. Unfortunately for Cameron, unlike Hiroki, Charlie has actually spent significant time at sea. But as we started, you know, talking and everything, um, I mean, this dude has got experience. I mean, he has sailed the North Atlantic. Charlie's in his in his mid to late thirties, which to me at the time seemed old. But I mean, it, he is as salty as you can get. the The North Atlantic is is known for cold rough, just nasty sailing conditions. And uh, and he looks all the part like somebody that spent their life on the North Atlantic. And so I was like, well, if there's anybody that's going to be good on this trip, it's, it's going to be this guy. And I didn't know a lot about Poland at the time, what it was like, like living under, uh, you know, kind of the Warsaw Pact, living under the USSR. He also told me about how uh, people would defect. If any one of a crew defected, then the captain of that boat would be punished. And he, he told me that he, he was on a boat where, you know, they're sailing, you know, past a NATO country, and uh, one of the crew members jumps off and, and decides he's going to, you know, swim for it. And the captain of the boat pulls out a gun and shoots him while he's in the water. 
because it's either I'm going to shoot this guy or we're going to get back to port and I'm going to get shot. Brother, that's 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 some legitimate hard living. This guy is legitimately unbreakably tough. Charlie agrees to fly in from Poland. And so with less than 24 hours until the Lilino is to depart, Cameron goes to the airport to pick up the official third member of his crew. I was not worried about him showing up. It just seemed like he was like a a very like, yep, you know, type guy. E- even though it's February in Hawaii, I mean, it's still hot, you know. So this guy steps off the plane. You know, I'm watching people come off. And, you know, they got their Hawaiian shirts and they got their this and that. And here's this guy, big bushy beard, very stoic. He's got a, you know, a, a sweater on. I said, yep, that's Charlie. And, uh, and I got a little sign, you know, with his name on it. And, uh, and so I, I felt like I didn't even have to hold it up. But, you know, I, I hold it up and sure enough, you know, here comes the, here comes the Polish guy with the big, big beard. He was, uh, just, just a character. Here she is. Welcome aboard the Little No. Oh, looks very solid. Hope so. Guy who sold it to me called it a tank, which I took to mean she's unsinkable and, well, so far so good. Charlie, I'd like you to meet Hiroki. He's been living on the boat with me the last few weeks. We've been working our butts off trying to get her seaworthy. Dzień dobry. Uh, yeah. Shoot. I'm just now realizing how this is going to work. I'll be honest with you guys. I only know how to speak English. And even then, half the time, I feel like people can't understand me because of my accent, but... Uh, oh, f- for me, English is okay. Well, I appreciate that. Hiroki said he's going to teach me Japanese. I said I would try. No promises. What do you say, Charlie? You down to try to teach me some Polish? Uh, English is okay, Captain. Uh, you don't got to call me Captain. But it is your boat. Doesn't matter to me. On this boat, everybody gets an equal say. We're all in this together, right? Cameron's fine, or Cam, or Thurman. For me, you are captain of the boat. But you do not want me to call you captain, so I will not. Great. Listen, I am really happy to have you guys here. Been dreaming of a trip like this since I was a kid. Gonna be an adventure of a lifetime. Let's get your stuff stowed below, Charlie. I can give you the grand tour before my girlfriend gets here. She is coming with us? Oh, no, she's not come. She's just coming to stay, say goodbye. Gonna be our last night together for a while. You love her, this girl? I mean, yeah, sure, she's a great girl. We met a couple months ago, but Japan's a long way away, and, well, the way things work with the Navy, who knows how long I'll be stationed over there. Hiroki and I will go then, so you have privacy. Uh, no, we'll figure something out. Charlie is right. You should take her to a hotel. Don't I know it. But I spent every last nickel I had buying this boat and getting her in shape. She's a nice girl, so she understands. Sixteen years now. I am married to the same woman. You should take her to a hotel. Nah, we'll be fine. You guys stay here. Get to know each other a little bit. Get to know the boat. Get comfy. I mean, she's your home too now, right? I mean, we're officially a crew now, right? We end up sleeping in her car, uh, a little Toyota Corolla. And the next morning, I wake up, I'm naked in the backseat of a Toyota Corolla, and all of these people are starting to show up. 
I mean, like the the Japanese consulate guy showing up, my submarine captain showing up, like, and I'm like, oh shit, <laughs> you know. Among those gathered to see them off was their co-conspirator, the gentleman from the Japanese consulate, who gifted them a bottle of Centauri whiskey. Many of the people that had, the guys that initially helped me when I first bought my boat, uh, they're there. A lot of my friends from La Mariana show up. People that I'm on the submarine with uh, showed up to send me off. It was a, I was really amazed at how many people, you know, showed up and, and it was a big celebration and I was so excited. At last, it is time for Lilano and his three-man crew to set sail. Well, almost. We say goodbye to everybody, we start sailing out, and a couple of other boats are like following us. So they you know, kind of follow us out uh, about halfway through Pearl Harbor, and then they turn around and, and head back. We come out the entrance to Pearl Harbor into the ocean, and uh, we start sailing. It's a, it's a beautiful, beautiful Hawaiian day. Uh, and the winds are light, and so so we had the jib up, which is the kind of average size front sail, and we're like, we should switch this to the Genoa, which is a bigger sail uh, for lighter winds. And so we pull the jib down, and we go to pull out the Genoa, and we don't have it. It's not it's not there. And we we're looking around and looking. Like, oh my God, we left one of the sails on the dock. So now. We turn around and sail all the way back. We get the sail and very unceremoniously this time, leave again. So now we kind of have our tail tucked between our legs, you know, we're sailing out again. Bye guys, we made it this time. We're not coming back and, and off we go. Oh man, I felt like a complete idiot. I felt very disheartened, like, oh man. And the send off had been so beautiful and so ceremonious and you know, and uh, now the second send-off is, is, is uh, very unceremonious. Finally, after weeks of planning, the journey of 4,000 miles is underway. So we leave Hawaii, we, we get away from the island, we start heading south, and nothing happens like we planned. Not, just everything goes wrong. It was the start of what seemed like a fun adventure. It would become a fight for survival, a struggle between life and death. We'll find out how things went so terribly wrong on the next episode. Surviving the Lilano is a production of Voyage Media. The series is produced by Nat Mundell, Robert Midas, Garrick Dion, and Dan Benamore. Executive produced by Cameron Thurman. Cameron is writing a book about his experience on the Lilano, and we will update the show notes with a link to the book when it is available. Starring Henry Monfries as Cameron. Jonathan Regier as Charlie, and Austin Kuniyoshi as Hiroki. Edited, sound designed, and mixed by Andres Coca. Original music by Durlis Gonzalez. If you're enjoying the show, please leave us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts or anywhere you're listening, and subscribe now for future episodes.